0: FM, 101.9 megahertz of Life The evil of corruption reaches into every corner of the world. Corruption lies at the heart of the most urgent problems we face. Welcome to Confidential Brief where Chad Thomas takes you into the stories behind the
1: issues facing our society. Good afternoon on this, the 14th of December, 2020. We're now back in the midst of a COVID crisis with the second wave well and truly upon us. And we've lost some, we are, we are reporting remotely and interviewing remotely once again um, due to the COVID <laughs> threat. Uh, we're going to be back after a short break chatting to Advocate Sony. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.
0: Hi FM has signed a code of conduct that is enforced by the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Under the code, we are committed to giving news that is accurate, comment that is fair, and programming that is not harmful to children, does not amount to hate speech, or the description of gratuitous violence or explicit sex. If you think we are not living up to that code, then you can inform the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. Direct any complaints in writing to the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa, at PO Box 412365 Craig Hall 2024. That's the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa. PO Box 412365 Craig Hall 2024. Or send an email to bccsa at nabsa.co.za. For more information please visit www.bccsa.co.za. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High FM.
1: So let's try that again. Welcome to Confidential Brief on this, the 14th of December 2020. We just passed the midday market. we are in the midst of the second wave of the COVID crisis. Sadly, the... Swaziland Prime Minister died in a South African hospital as a result of COVID-19 complications. And we've seen worldwide the, the death toll rise, rise together with the, the the number of infections. But on a positive note, we've also seen the rollout of vaccines. So hopefully next um, next year this time, this will be well behind us. I'm joined today by <coughs> Advocate Suresh Soni, who has been a public servant in South Africa. He has served this country both as... A executive at SARS as well as South African ambassador to many countries, including Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Qatar, Italy, Albania, and Malta. It just so happens he chose the places with the hardest names pronounced to be ambassador. He was also our permanent representative on behalf of DIRCO, with three agencies of the United Nations, which was the UNFAO, um, the UNWFO, and the IFAD. Um, If we could welcome to the show. Thank you, Chad. It's ambassador, not advocate. Thank you very much. You know, what I'm so, you know being, a, being a show that deals specifically with, with law, with corruption, sure. with crime, we normally have advocates on. It's not every day we have an ambassador. I think it's, a, in fact, the first time we've had an ambassador on the show, especially somebody that's been ambassador to so many countries and so many interesting countries. And we're going to chat about that a little bit later. I want to start with your, your time at SARS. What made you decide... To become a public servant, and wise sars of all places. Thank you. Uh,
2: so basically, I was in in my own business. I, I ran clothing and textile manufacturing companies, wholesales and retails, from 1979 until about uh, from 1979 until about 1997, and uh, at that stage. My wife was not well. In fact, her systems were collapsing, and we decided to close the business and experience a life-changing moment. (coughs) Uh, I intended to be a consultant and get into some different business, which would be less stressful, but I was then approached by SARS (coughs) to to join their team, (coughs) which was just starting off with uh, Johan van Lockenberg, Ivan Play, uh, uh Commissioner Gordon, and so forth, and I accepted that, thinking it would be for about a year or two. But I ended up staying there for just over ten years.
1: And tell me, you, your your <coughs> duties at SARS going into SARS was this as a result of um, your previous experience working with any um, of, of the people <coughs> within the struggle, or was it just something that you're going to consult based on your on your business experience? <coughs>
2: Oh, uh, during my uh, earlier life, uh, from 1976, I was the chairperson of the SRC at ML Sultan Technical College. In the 80s, I joined the underground of the ANC in Controversies, where I participated in all of the mass democratic movement programs, the United Democratic Front and the Natal Indian Congress initiatives. So I did have a strong political background. I was detained in uh, 1985, and exactly uh, uh, 35 years to date, uh, I was held in Section 29 of the Internal Security Act, and it's uh, auspicious that we're chatting on this day. My daughter, Justine, was born uh, while I was in prison. It's, it's, it's very traumatic. You
1: know, people tend to talk about, um, hearing about dissidents to the apartheid regime being held under that specific section. And it's, it's, it's become part of the course here. Oh, this struggle's still what? This struggle's still what? They were held under this. They don't actually understand what it was about. And I recently read a book, the ANC Spy Bible by Mo and he goes into great description of what led to, to, to him being held under that very section and what the experiences were. So I can just imagine what you must have gone through because he actually prepared for it. He knew it was coming. He knew it was happening. And when it happened, it was as bad as what he planned for. Were you expecting it? Uh,
2: not, not really. But uh, to some degree, we had a heads up. And and Moore's book, the ANC Spy Bible, is an extremely well-written book I would suggest all your listeners actually read it. Uh, so Mo, his uh, brother Eunice, and I were part of the same ANC unit, and we were arrested at about the same time. Uh, so I was less prepared, but I was far more involved with my family. I think from the whole group, I was the only married person with, two, with one child already, my son Carl, and my wife was expecting uh, our second child, Jasneem. But I also, at that point, ran my own very big business in both manufacturing, wholesale, and retail. So I had much more responsibilities uh, on, on my plate. You write about everybody um, having the need
1: to read a book like that by Mosheik because the, the books we tend to read um are, are, are very personality-driven. Mm-hmm. They're very egocentric. In that book, you see a completely different Moshe. You see somebody who goes through the emotions of the struggle, somebody that goes through the emotions of having to live under an assumed name, leading a double life, and then knowing sooner or later that they're going to be taken into custody, and then what happens. It must have been a fascinating time for you. How did you become involved in the struggle to that extent?
2: Well, look, initially, as I said, in 1976, I was at M.L. Sultan Technical College, and I just participated, but I became A leader in in the student uprising. And in the following year, I was appointed as the chairperson of the SRC. So those were tough times. But in the 80s, I connected with Mo and his brother, Yunus. Uh, Yunus had already gone to Swaziland and uh, finalized uh, the the establishment of the MJK uh, underground unit. And I was invited to, to join the unit. And it's it's almost 35 years now that we've worked together. So, Ambassador
1: Sodi to, to come from a business environment, to be involved in the struggle, not just on the peripheries, but to be really involved in the struggle to the extent that you are arrested, to see the transformation of the country, but to take a step back from public service and to rather concentrate on your <coughs> business and the matters of employing people in labor, it must have been quite a a a... a a, a interesting experience for you and a, a paradigm shift in your thinking. Now joining the public sector so long after your comrades had joined the public sector. Take us more into that and, and what led you to, to your appointment in SARS. We know that your your wife was ill. You were going through this change of life, but but what was your position within SARS and what was the intention of this whole um, reshaping of the department?
2: Sure. Look, I, I wasn't just uh, a, a small business person. Uh, just before getting arrested, my wife Rueda and I decided to launch our own brand called Gazuzi. And we invested heavily international. Uh, we, we, we studied the market internationally and we were going to go into uh, a brand of our own. Now, this product was uh, this range was actually uh, showcased with Annabella Polin, who was uh, Lady Diana's designer. So we invested a lot into the brand, and we were hoping to build a designer, uh, a, a, a group of designer uh, shops. Together with that, I had a clothing factory, and I was subcontracting to about 30 to 40 firms. So to be arrested and taken out uh, of the business with Rueda being pregnant was a massive blow. And, uh, of course, all of us, Moe, Eunice, and I had a very tough detention. And coming out, I was faced with the choice of, uh, do I actually go back into the struggle? Do I go back into business? But I was left with a brain lesion, and the doctors felt that I will be non-functional for the rest of my life. Uh, However, I got back on my feet, and I did both. I pursued my business uh, career. Uh, together with Rueda, and we, we also contributed far more extensively uh, towards the struggle. Uh, in 1994, I was appointed the top outstanding person in the world for economic development and uh, entrepreneurship. By then, we had rebuilt this business into a formidable and highly competitive uh, company,
1: Fascinating times and, and the stories that come out of that era are truly fascinating. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick ad break. When we come back, we're going to talk more to advocate, so uh, advocate, listen to me, ambassador Sony about his time within SARS and then his time as an ambassador abroad. We'll be back straight <laughs> after this.
0: IFM FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas on High
1: fm I've been getting it wrong today, which is quite unlike me. I'm actually chatting to Ambassador Shiresh Soni, not Advocate Shiresh Soni. We're so used to advocates being on the show that it seems to become habit. And the fact remains is to have been an ambassador is a a honor and it's a title that you keep your whole life. Um, Ambassador Sony going back to SARS. You land up at SARS after a life in business. It must have been a complete change in mindset, a paradigm shift in thinking. Suddenly you're no longer this captain of industry. You're now a,
2: a, a bean counter of sorts. Tell us more. That, that's true. Well, actually, what I decided at the, uh, around 1997, uh, is that I would uh, go into uh, a consulting business, but largely focused on building the competitiveness and growth of small to medium manufacturing firms. So that was my plan. And the first client who approached me wanted me to represent him on a tax matter. And I I, I refused the client uh, because I had no interest in going into uh, the tax uh, ambit. But I must say one thing that, that drove me to studying tax in intensely, was when I came out of prison, I was under enormous audits, unreasonably uh, un explained, and eventually my uh, accountant, Professor Philip and I went to see the Revenue Authority, and we met a young guy who said to me, uh, we, I am not serving my military duty, I am placed at the Revenue Service to nail guys like you, and my task is to bring you down." So ever since, I actually took a lot of time to study uh, tax. But during the election, we had the last uh, Minister of Finance from the apartheid regime hold a meeting in Durban where he threatened people to say that I have so many files on your tax matters and if you don't support the National Party and vote for the National Party, uh, we will uh, call on, on you from a tax perspective. So Obviously, the entire ambit of tax meant something special to me. But around 1990, government, together with the trade union, SACTU, decided to change the tariff and duties in the clothing and textile industry. So I had spent four years on reshaping uh, our GATT offer, the General Agreement of Trade and Tariffs. It was a fierce lobby, uh, a lot of push, to ensure that the interests of small manufacturers and black-owned companies are going to be uh, considered. So I, I was more or less geared on the, on the macroeconomic issues, but after Mo and I came out of jail, I worked in economic intelligence for the ANC. So a lot of my work was policy development and so forth. However, I was more focused, and I, I wanted to go into... Building small to medium manufacturing firms, their competitiveness, and they grow it. When I took this client on, and uh, after much duress from the client, and I pitched at SARS, it was Vuso Shabalala, who was responsible for customs, who approached me and said, "Look, you can't do this to us, comrade. We don't know much about tax. We don't know much about customs. You've been an importer. You've been an exporter. Will you come and work under me in the customs section?" And I, I really was not interested. But I then took on a six-month contract uh, to assist Busso. At the end of that six months, I think Praveen was traveling abroad uh, as commissioner. But Busso then approached me to say, look, I want you to take a longer-term uh, job for about two years at least and head up what he called commercial services. So it was everything outside the main support business. I did that, and then he insisted that I take on uh, <clears throat> the the modernisation and transformation project of customs. So that went on until my daughter decided to move back to Durban, and my mum was ailing. I then decided to also leave Sars for a while and go back to Durban. But again, I was called back to to Sars to say, look, we need. Uh, uh, support in, in building the enforcement and uh, risk modules. So I took another short-term uh, stay, which sort of kept me there till 2011. <clears throat> now, the reason I left SARS, we we had a terrible house robbery, which left Rueda and I both for dead. Uh, it, it was very traumatic, uh, a, a terrible experience uh, to, to go through as a human being. And again, I decided, look, that's enough uh, of my term in Pretoria. I'm going to move back to Durban, or, or so. But then it took it took us about a year to heal, uh, and I decided that I would move to Cape Town. Simultaneously, I was approached by government to say, would you work at uh, the uh, at Foreign Ministry and consider a posting abroad? So so that's how I moved from one. Uh, department to the other. That's absolutely fascinating. So, you you come from a life of business,
1: you go into the public the public space, you become a public servant at SARS <coughs> during the creation of um, an investigative or an intelligence driven um, unit. You involved at, at 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 ground level mm-hmm. with all of this, and now you you get invited to join the the foreign service. That's, that's, that's quite a feather in your cap. Now, why do you think you were approached specifically in respect of the foreign service? Uh,
2: well, I, I think the main point was that uh, uh, the, the people who knew me in the NC would have wanted me to remain in the public service. Well, you must take note that during my term at SAS, I was offered a full-time position which is very rare, not a secondment, a full-time position at the World Customs Organization, and of course the the SARS management were not happy about that, and both my wife and I, Rueda, declined this posting. I would have been in Brussels at around 2012, heading up the capability and capacity building uh, unit for developing countries, so it was somewhat in the in the in on the horizon, and people were disappointed. Outside of SARS, in parliament and, and others, places that I did not take up the offer. So it landed, but also I came with a rich business acumen. And that's one of the things that we don't do well in the foreign ministry, which is to, to promote, uh, foreign direct investments and, uh, uh market South African products abroad. So I think with that skill set, uh, there, there was a need, and uh, I was then posted to Kazakhstan. I, I watched the, the
1: first virtual launch of Ivan Pillay's um, book, uh, Mr. Rogue, recently, and I saw that you were very vocal. We're going to get to that a little bit later in the show. <coughs> and one of the interesting things that he said um, in that in that virtual book launch is that he doesn't believe that card deployment existed to the extent that that it's been spoken about in the media and in the public space. Do you believe that Carter deployment played any role in, 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 in your appointment into these various roles, or is it purely because of your business acumen?
2: In my case, it was my business acumen and my academic qualifications. Uh, and, and I had both, but I also had a very strong working uh, knowledge of tax and customs, In fact, I would have been the only person in the ANC who could say that I was a a large importer working with imported fabrics and products. Uh, So I understood uh, all of the different incentives. I understood all of the the supply-side incentives and, of course, the the sort of duty structure and and so forth. Uh, Coming into SARS, I came with a drumbeat, which is almost the mainstay of my life. And that is to increase productivity, to improve quality, to reduce cost, and to build a a set of ethics and conduct uh, that is becoming of what we need in a public service. So all of that time, this entire team that's been bashed like this really worked hard. There were times when Johan and I would lose track of time and it would be one or two in the morning and we'll be both working in separate offices. We we were never in the same department until much later. I was in customs and he was in enforcement, but we worked together uh, on many projects. And when, of course, this issue of the rogue unit came up, I I must say I, I saw the threat to our fiscus and the revenue service immediately. And as a sitting ambassador, I flew to South Africa, and I led a march to SARS. But I also jumped into a public campaign, creating a Facebook uh, group and so forth, which uh, had thousands of people. And I started to work towards uh, ensuring that uh, Ivan Pillay, uh, Johan van Lockenberg are just not left out in the cold. Uh, So, yes, I, I made a decision that, despite I'm... I'm serving as an ambassador under President Zuma. I'm going to jump into uh, supporting the f- uh, the fact that we protect Treasury and that we do not lose what we lost at the Revenue Service. And unfortunately, we didn't win that fight. So it's cost the country in billions of rands, and many of the crooks have just gone out walking. Looking at the, the comments you made, during the virtual launch of, of Ivan
1: Pillay's book, I, I noticed an unwavering support and in fact a very, um, outspoken, vocal <coughs> support from yourself in respect of Mr. Van Lochrenberg, Mr. Gordon, um, Mr. Pillay. D- does this date back to your relationships in the eighties or is this purely as a result of what you've seen in respect of the work you did at SARS?
2: Uh, With Johan, I only met him when I landed at SARS. By age and by experience, I was far more senior. But Johan and I were tasked to look at uh, uh, certain cases together. And I insisted that Johan heads the unit and I will work uh, under him, uh, which he found very, very strange. But, of course, he had experience in government, which I did not have. And he he also understood the bureaucracy. I was a total uh, square peg in a round hole. So that worked well. But during that period, I built tremendous respect for Johan and many people in SARS. I can name hundreds of them who all have paid a bitter price uh, during this attack on SARS. For Johan, Johan had no business to join us. He's a white, he's an Afrikaner. He's a male. He's been in the government system. And the biggest price Johan paid was when the Afrikaner males in SARS saw him as a sellout. And the attacks on him were, they came left, right, and center. And I saw him bleed for almost 10 years. Up to today, when you listen to Johan, he's a non-racist, a non-sexist, and he's one of the better human beings you'd ever meet. With Ivan Pillay, Ivan was the person who gave wings to forming the MJK unit. It was Yunus who travelled to Swaziland, and Ivan had come in. Uh, he, he was managing uh, the ANC underground units from Swaziland. That unit was then taken over by Ibrahim Ismail Ibrahim, <coughs> who uh, and Ivan, of course, went to Lusaka to set up uh, the, the the baseline for. Uh, Operation Vula So we were again lucky that we met with somebody As senior as Ibrahim Ismail Ibrahim And the three of us worked with him very uh, intensely uh, Ivan himself uh, Has has made major sacrifices All his life And uh, it's it's very sad to see a comrade A person with such distinctions Being left out in the cold It's terrible so I I cannot help myself Travin, I must make a point Travin is far more my senior so
0: (coughs) High FM 101.9 megahertz of life Each of us is on life's journey Thank you for letting High FM provide the soundtrack to your life High FM 101.9 megahertz of life come a long way together. Hundreds of thousands listening in over 80 countries, sharing the same goals as you, the same vision, the same values. Thank you for staying with us. Here's to you. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life.
3: Oh Inside, so strong. Oh, something inside, so strong. The more you refuse to hear my voice.
0: You're listening to The Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas
1: on High fm Our sincere apologies from High fm This has been one of the most problematic technical broadcasts. And this is simply because we want to bring you live um, interviews with our guests, our very topical guests, so that the content is always fresh. A lot of staff have resorted to pre-recordings as well as, fortunately, in this age of covid having to report remotely, both with our guests um, at their homes or office and ourselves at our, our homes. This does bring about problems. Um, I'm on the line with uh, Ambassador Sony. Before we were cut off, we were chatting about mm-hmm. his time at SARS and his relationship with Minister Pravin Gordon. If you want to pick up from there, we've got until 5-2, um, Ambassador.
2: Sure. So, okay, uh, as I explained, I, I then moved over to DERCO. Now, now Durko was quite a shock to me. Uh, my initial impression when I went for the training was that it's run well, but I was fooled because they were implementing the ISO standards only in the training facility, which after a while they dropped and the quality system just sunk. Uh, so I want to jump straight into, I, I experienced a lot of uh, we did some very good projects in Durco, uh, but since the wasted nine years and the capture period, I saw Durko going downhill terribly, and it, it, it raised big concerns. Now, from the background and culture I come from, remember, I was already by 2017, 2016, 15, pushing uh, against uh, uh, corruption, state capture, and the Guptas, <coughs> openly and publicly. But the rot in Durko started hitting me in the face. So, uh, you know, it's a strange thing that when uh, Minister Sizulu came to Durko, seasoned diplomats were taking a bet: would Minister Sizulu survive in Durko, or will the Director General outsmart her? I thought it was a very stupid bet to take as a careerist uh, and a a career diplomat. I can understand if politicians are are making such wages. Uh, And it was clear that there was a a move to get uh, Minister Sizulu out of uh, Turco. Alternatively, she was about to fire the director general. The second telltale sign is even in this year's budget speech, When you hear Minister Tito Mbaweni commenting on DIRCO, if you go back to the budget speech, the first department he speaks about is DIRCO. And he says, Minister Pando and I have agreed to cut costs, downgrade missions, reduce missions, and so forth. And watching it on TV, I saw the shock on Minister Pando's face. I think she was hearing it for the first time. And I've asked her to have an honest cup of tea with President Ramaphosa and be true to herself because I don't see any signs of Durco taking razor-sharp initiatives to cut costs. I struggled with that for eight years inside of DERCO. Now, if you take the Auditor General findings, you take the top five or six, I think there's a clear case there of bad management. And, and if the president or the minister calls an inquiry uh, into the fitness of the DG, the CFO, and the top uh, officials at DERCO, I, I think they will be unsuitable for the job. But similarly, state security does an audit <coughs> of all our foreign missions, and uh, DERCO just doesn't fix those issues that come up in the audit findings. So, I kept writing. Uh, when, when I saw a change of uh, uh, leadership, I, I wrote to Minister Sisulu, and she encouraged me to send her further documentation, which I did, but then uh, this uh, the, the, obviously, the switch came after the election. But Minister Sizulu did something very noble. She commissioned a high-level investigation into Durko. Now, Chad, you must understand at this point, diplomats were writing letters, uh, open letters, and they were flying around as to which uh, diplomat slept with which uh, other colleague's wife, and it, it was terrible. So... And, of course, women were being abused. The system was broke, broken. Now, that investigation was done. It was rushed uh, to complete before the election. And currently, the minister or the president haven't addressed the findings of that uh, report. And neither have they made that report public. And I think they owe it to us to make that report public. <coughs> but we started to see... when. In 2017, in early 2018, I was moved to Italy, <coughs> and I, I, I actually looked forward to it, but when I landed in Italy, I landed in a real rot. Uh, the first thing that I found was that they were not following the PFMA, the Public Finance Management Act. So they created a new mission, and this agreement to close down missions and downgrade missions has been something For the last seven, eight years on the horizon before 2017, they opened a new mission. Now, one of the things you need to do is to open a bank account for the mission. So to bypass Treasury, they changed the wrong mission bank account to become a joint bank account. Now, that's not allowed in terms of financial management, but it got worse So they were running the uh, accounts of two missions out of one bank account, and they said to me as the chief finance officer, I cannot see the transactions that go through the bank account. Now, that doesn't make any sense in accounting, auditing, or management principles. I I couldn't even see the source documents uh, of transactions that are processed through the bank account, but I needed to sign a document at the end of each month, that I checked the bank reconciliation statement. Now, it, you can't just check a bank reconciliation statement if you don't look at the transactions. So I, so, I was quite so, shocked. Yeah, go ahead.
1: I, so, 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 Ambassador, we've moved on to your time at, at Durko, and suddenly we've moved into this world of, of, mm-hmm. of what you are claiming to be financial irregularities, etc., Um, And you say that an inquiry has been made into this, but the findings haven't been made public. What are you doing to try to ensure that these findings are made public and that this can be addressed and that any anomalies in terms of the Public Finance Management Act can
2: be addressed as a matter of urgency? Okay. Well, look, I kept writing memos uh, to Minister Pando. Uh, I asked for legal opinions from the Office of the Chief State Law Advisor, uh, on, on HR issues. So, for example, we are not paying uh, uh, salaries that are due to people internationally. And we will end up embarrassing President Ramaphosa, the minister, and the government of South Africa. We've been taken to court and we're settling outside of court, uh, knowingly that we are not following the law. Now, you cannot have a director general, a CFO, and a head of HR overtly breaking laws in a foreign country Uh, uh, and and moving on. So on that one, the office of the chief uh, state law advisor has supported me, but it's gone a year since we got the advice note, and nothing has been done. Uh, Durko went around the world firing staff, uh, again, not following the laws. Uh, And, of course, various missions have been taken to court, and we have to settle out of court to avoid the embarrassment. But it's just bad management. Uh, then
1: it's, it's more than that. It's, it's more than that. The allegations you're making um, mm-hmm. would suggest that from a funding perspective, there's not sufficient budget for us to be able to maintain our international missions, which are a critical part in us maintaining international relationships <laughs> and especially in creating
2: trade deals. You're right. And, and there isn't a strong enough focus on business diplomacy which is what I, I was bringing uh, to the table. But, but moreover, uh, I was asked to sign two employment contracts, which are against the law, and I refused. I said, you, you can't ask me to sign an employment contract that is not consistent with the law. And they said, well, if you don't, these people won't get paid at the end of the month, and, and uh, you will be charged. So it's just a, a total mess. Uh, we go on to then, I, I started to find many more issues from basic things like leave management. People will go on leave, come back, uh, don't add up their leave, and, and be entitled to a full leave again. Uh, these are basic things that in my 20 years of business coming into government uh, in 1997, those are housekeeping things that you fix immediately. Your leave planning, your, your daily, weekly, monthly Uh, planning, which links up to your annual plan. So I found that mission in a complete mess. Now, rather than addressing those issues, the Director General, uh, when he saw that I'm putting pressure around July 2019, uh, wrote to me and he sent a a staff up to my my manager to meet with me and say he is intending to suspend me. But uh, uh, and he's going to hold an investigation. So I responded to that. He didn't suspend me. This was in July 2019. In October, they tabled five charges against me, which will not sustain in terms of reason or application to law. But he pushed to to get me out. Now, unlike most of our, our leaders in the ANC, I decided that if my credibility is at stake, which is what Ivan did, which is what Johan did, we will resign. Because you cannot hold public office and hold the progress of a department up while you are trying to prove your innocence. And I do hope that Ace Makashule and everybody else who have been indicted do actually step aside or step down. Now,
1: So that that being said, uh, uh, Ambassador, and we are running short of time, where are we going in respect of what you've brought about in terms of issues that you've raised in terms of the Public Finance Management Act and allegations that have been made against you? Is there going to be a a hearing of sorts? Are we going to see the results of both the inquiry that you've, instigated as well as the results of the inquiry that's been instigated against you?
2: Look, for a year I've been writing to Minister Pando and asking her to make the tape recordings and the documentation available to my attorneys. They're just not responding to it. So our most recent uh, approach is to say that we might have to make a submission to the State Capture Commission or to make a submission to Parliament so that, uh, that all of this comes out in the open with evidence and so forth. Uh, I could report it to the Human Rights Commission because I do believe that my, uh, that human rights were, were completely uh, tramped over. Uh, and finally, I could take the matter to court. But we, we need Minister Pandel to make the information available to my attorneys and it's almost a year Uh, that they failed to do this well all of this is of concern Ambassador Sonia I must
1: apologize for the technical glitches that uh, we suffered earlier as well as to our listeners Um, there will be an edited podcast that will be uploaded that will take out the, the glitches and the ad breaks and we do need to catch up on this very 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 important topic so I look forward to engaging with you come January February of 2021 again my apologies for the glitches and thank you so much for joining us today Ambassador
2: Thank you very much, and thank you to your listeners. I also want to ask the listeners to perhaps support the orange mask campaign, Uh, so we wear orange masks on Friday, asking people around the country to bring an end to corruption. And I'm also uh, I would request that uh, that all South African citizens participate in the civil society organisations to campaign for the eradication of corruption and that we address state capture. Adequately. Thank you very much. I couldn't
1: think of a better way to end the show than to advise our listeners to participate and to understand their civic duty. I'll be back at 4 o'clock with the afternoon drive. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Ambassador Sony. you, my listeners, I'll be chatting to you a little bit later today. You'll be listening to Confidential Brief.
0: Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.